Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide, as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. do you figure is ultimately the point of storytelling? I'm not trying to be nihilistic. This isn't a moment of doom and gloom about the industry or anything like that. But I'm thinking more about the reasons and the impulses that drive us to tell stories and that drive us to tell stories in the various ways that we do. This is, after all, a podcast about genre. And I've been really struck by this idea of genre as a spice rack, a tool chest. You might use this or that to do one thing or another. The two authors who we're going to talk to today are both using tons of different genres, whether that's in individual stories or within their work as a whole. I think it's exciting. It feels like there's a future here, an opportunity to look at the ways in which we can challenge who is telling what narratives in order to better figure out what narratives we want to tell in the first place. First up, let's think about government surveillance. S. Chu Yi Lu is a writer, an editor, a translator, and they are the author of In the Watchful City. It is their debut novella, and it is a novella in stories, a mosaic novella. There's a frame story featuring a character called Anima, who is a watcher in a marvelous city called Aura, where surveillance is de rigueur. But when Anima is visited by a mysterious stranger who opens up this cabinet of curiosities, they start to wonder about whether or not the city's surveillance is actually as good of a thing as it seems. I was so curious because, well, I walk down the street, I use Google, Plenty of things are tracking me. And so I asked S where this story got its start. And it turns out it went on a very interesting trip to Hangzhou in China. As a part of an exchange run by SIFWA, the Science Fiction Writers Association, and the FAA, but not the one you're thinking of, the Future Affairs Administration, a Chinese science fiction group. They arranged a visit for Western and Chinese authors to see some technology that was developed under Alibaba. So that was really cool because I got to go see like the demonstration was a really fancy upscale KFC. <laughs> and they had um, and like the fast food restaurants tend to be more more fancy over in China, the American brands. And they had an ordering kiosk where you put in your order and at the end you can pay with your face. So basically, it's it scans your face, which is connected to your your digital wallet, and you just pay that way. And it's it was really interesting to see how the cultural attitudes towards surveillance and facial recognition were just so different in China. Because 
over there, I think there's there's less of the, you know, in the US that people are like, oh, you know, freedom, personal liberties, the privacy and that kind of thing. People would be like, whoa, that's that's too much for me. I don't want, you know, my face connected with all of this. But in China, the facial recognition system is really advanced. There's a lot of really advanced surveillance, which, you know, is uh, not not quite used for good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it, yeah, sure, it helps with law enforcement, but there can be ways in which it, it might not be the most benevolent use of surveillance. Um, so basically, I had the story idea. Um, you know, we were supposed to write the story um, that was based on the technology we saw. And I had this idea of just a city that uses surveillance, but what if it was used for good? Or at least the people doing the surveillance believe it's being used for good. And what would that surveillance look like if I changed it to like, not just cyberpunk, but I wanted to do a more like biological, like organic type of technology. So instead of using like computer chips and, you know, matrix hacks, hacking like numbers, you know, falling on the screen, I wanted to use, you know, nature and the networks that already exist in nature because I had learned about the wood wide web, which is the fungal networks that connect trees and they communicate that way. And I was like, whoa, that's so cyberpunk. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, that, that was kind of the, what inspired the frame story. And also I was thinking about Italo Calvino has a book called Invisible Cities, which has uh, Marco Polo and Kublai Khan having this dialogue and descriptions of cities in between. And so I wanted to also have two characters having a dialogue. And one character is very much like has never left the city. And the other character has been exploring the entire world. And I was like, what would it be like for that character to bring the world to this very sheltered character? And like, would it blow their mind? (laughs) I was so taken by the infinite possibility of this of this case of wonders were there stories that you wrote that didn't quite fit are there are there objects in that case that you're like i know that there's a story about this <laughs> actually i think i i more like built the case around the stories that i already knew i wanted to tell so i didn't quite think of like is there you know other stuff in the in the case that is connected to a story i want to tell i mean if i thought about if i think about it i'm sure i could come up with something but mostly i just knew like the there were these few stories that had been really like percolating in my mind for a long time and so those were the ones that i included in the cabinet of curiosities and I just love the cabinet of curiosities as like a fiction, you know, um, trope. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I just think it's so cool. And I went to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles and got to see an actual cabinet of curiosities. It was tiny, but then you open up the doors and there's drawers and then there's like drawers inside the drawers. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is what it would look like. You know, (laughs) it sounds like you had some of these stories either in your mind or already in process as you were putting the book together. But I I love that they all, not only are they all sort of these different stories, but they all move in different forms. There's a sports story. There's a horror story. There's a story that's in verse. There's an epistolary story. What was it like moving through these these different modes. It was really cool to me because I wanted to make sure that the stories still kind of referenced each other, even though they're they're separate. But for example, in the epistolary story, you have a ruler who is going through a lot of like political turmoil in the, the country. 
And the one of the advisors is like, you know, maybe you can um, start up basically the secondary world equivalent of the Olympics, and that'll be a distraction for people. And then that's the sports story. So <laughs> it, you kind of like get these hints that they're all cross-referenced. I draw from real world cultures and transform them because basically that story is about a colonizer country that the way the rule works is it's not a monarchy, it's a duarchy because there's two rulers who are always ruling side by side. And it's not quite the same as a king and a queen because these two rulers are, uh, they're reincarnated and they find each other and they work together. And a lot of that was um, was drawn from like uh, Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> like, um, you know, because the, the Dalai Lama is reincarnated and found. There was so much that that went into that story. Like I read a passage on Chinese spycraft. Oh, cool. And I read like a whole like chapter, a whole like section of the book to distill it down to the one little section in the story where there's um, this message that's numbered 369. And it's um, these little fragments because the actual history in China, you would take a message and cut it up into different pieces and send certain pieces with different messengers so that if one messenger was intercepted, oh. you couldn't get the entire message. You had to have everyone come together to deliver this message. So I loved playing with that because I was like, here, let me give people just three pieces. And if you kind of like fill in the story around it, you can see that this character is is trying to lead um, a revolutionary plot. I'm really curious about how readers are going to interpret that story because I had a very clear narrative in my mind as I was writing it. And I was like, I want to present these documents to readers and trust that they can put it together. And one um, Easter egg in that story, I my the whole book is full of Easter eggs. <laughs> but but my, my favorite Easter egg about that story is that the ruler who is still in power, who is writing a lot of the letters, is named Koto. And the ruler who has gone rogue is named Sumi. And Koto is a Japanese instrument, and Sumi is a Japanese term for ink. So I, I kind of liked how it's um, the, the character who is the instrument, who is sound, is doing the writing. And the character who is ink is the one whose voice isn't really heard because the voice is in, it's not being documented. It's in the real world, and you kind of hear, you know, what that character is doing through all these other characters in the documents. So I, I, I loved like just exploring these little things. <laughs> I'm in such awe of creating a world in that way. And I guess I'd just love to hear you talk about it a little bit more because it, it feels like there's so much work. There's so much world. What's it like sort of distilling all of that down into a novella? I think for me, because I've had a lot of experience with communities that have a lot of cultural contact, like um, when I was an undergrad, I studied linguistics and I particularly liked um, sociolinguistics, so how language and, and society interact. And in particular, I was very fascinated by world English, you know, varieties of English outside US, UK, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada. And so one of the places I went to was Singapore, where I was just really struck by how there's all these different cultures that came together with different histories and had a lot of contact that still melded together to create this thing that's uniquely Singaporean. And so I... Um, I kind of wanted to draw from that to create cultures 
in a secondary world that had that kind of like rich, you know, sense of mixture and sense of different like contact and influences on each other. Um, like the weird Western too, it was inspired mostly by it. That one is very inspired by the um, American Southwest, notably um, California, Nevada, Arizona. And, you know, I, with that one, I was thinking also about real world influences where a lot of people have this idea that cowboys were, you know, these lone white men on the frontier when it's like, actually, the you know, a ton of them were Mexican, a lot of them were black. And so I wanted to write like, okay, there's this sheriff cowboy character who is very clearly coded as Mexican. And there's this, you know, Chinese coded character who comes in because yeah, Chinese people were in the West too, you know, so I just I was drawing a lot from real world stories and experiences of cultural richness. And I think that made world building a little bit easier because it like I was creating analogs, but they're not exactly one to one. So I was just kind of drawing from that inspiration. And I think that's what really gives a sense of richness because you know in in the real world you you rarely have you know one place that's just one homogenous culture so i think i think sometimes fantasy can be a little bit flat and i just i've always wanted to see like more contact more more cultural mixing and and all of that so that that was one of my my priorities for the novella it's so neat to hear the way that you're talking about bringing so many real world things to bear on this novel that feels like such an exciting vision of a future, not even necessarily our future. Your work and this book in particular are my introduction to neo-pronouns. And I loved it. It was one of those things where I opened the book and there's this moment of like, ooh, cool. It started suffusing things that I was writing that I was thinking about and being like, oh, right. There are so many more ways to perceive identity, to perceive culture. I would just love to hear you talk about that and in incorporating so many things that I feel like for a decent subset of your readership might be brand new. And you you certainly don't pull any punches, but you're also there sort of holding out a hand and inviting people to come along. Yeah, the reason why I used a lot of neo-pronouns in the book was because I have been searching for a long time to find, you know, works that use neo-pronouns extensively because I first came across them probably in 2013-ish, which was when I first kind of started exploring non-binary identity. And I just thought they were super cool because from a linguistics point of view, there's, there's the common separation of there's open classes of words and closed classes. So nouns are open classes, you can easily add to them. And pronouns have traditionally been seen as closed classes. But neo pronouns are like proving that wrong, you yeah. know, so because you, you can you can invent new ones, and then people can kind of pick up on they'll still find ways to to um, do the declensions, you know, you see she her, and then you realize this neo pronoun is like, see, sir, and you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. One thing I really wanted to do with that was just no explanation, throw the reader in. Because when I, I've taught workshops on writing with neo-pronouns, and a lot of people worry about getting tripped up on the neo-pronouns. But with this story, I wanted to show like, yeah, you might kind of like find it clunky for a page or two. But after that, you're, you know, more immersed in the story, and you might not even notice it. So, um, so that was something I wanted to explore. And I think the great thing about secondary worlds, too, is that you can manipulate you know, the social and cultural norms. Because, you know, previously when I when I wanted to write with neo-pronouns, I was like, I have to kind of explain this. I have to orient the reader. I have to like show how it's used in the culture. But I've always wanted to 
write a story where it's like, people don't have to explain, you just know, which isn't really how it happens in our world. But I really wish it could, you know, <laughs> like, I really wish I could have like a, a pronoun sign over my head or something. So I don't have to explain it all the time. Because, you know, that's what I was thinking, like, you go on Twitter, and you go to people's bios, and most people have pronouns in there nowadays, but you go out into, you know, meet space, and you're, you're seeing like people in person, and, and you don't have that experience. So I, I kind of wanted to create that escapism in the novella. And the other thing was, um, like in the sports story, there's a trans girl who is the main character. And the way she expresses her gender is through foot binding, which I just did an interview about this. And that story has been developing since like 2009. Oh, wow. <laughs> because it, yeah, it was like back, um, back, you know, when I was studying in Singapore, and um, we went to this shop that was one of the last places that still created shoes for bound feet. And I remember just being there as the only Chinese person in my study abroad group standing there while they're talking about like this exotic, like barbaric practice. And I was like standing there like, oh, this is really weird and awkward. <laughs> and I want to write a story where, where you know, it's, it's not condemning the culture or seeing it as this backwards thing. So I kind of created that society where like, like how it really was in China, where people chose most of the time chose to do this practice, and it was very gendered. So I was thinking like, okay, what's a way that you know, a trans person could express womanhood that doesn't focus on the, the body the way we do in our cultures, you know, like just have different social norms. And then like, what if it's just accepted? What if you go to this sports competition and the assistive technology is just like, oh, okay, let's just make sure you're not like, you know, trying to superpower yourself. And once we are sure that you're not getting an unfair advantage, just like go ahead, you know? So I, I really wanted to take these small assumptions and small defaults that we have in our world and change them and it's surprising how radical that can be, you know, like, you think that this detail is so small, and you don't really think about it in your day to day life. But once you explore it in fiction and try to do a different perspective on it, it's like, whoa, this is mind blowing. And I think that's why people think a lot of my work is fresh. Um, because I just, I take these things where I'm like, actually, this, an, this is an assumption we have, that's not necessarily the real truth. So let's, you know, play with that and, and flex it around. You know, when I when I was growing up and writing fiction, my characters were all just like default white characters like that. That was what I'd read. That was what I was used to. And I was like, this is what a story looks like. And then gradually I came to challenge that assumption to the point where there's like no white characters in, in the Watchful City, yeah. you know. Um, but a lot of that, like it, it was a lot of like very subtly challenging things. And one thing I started to do on Tumblr um, several years ago, I had heard heard um you know that the complaints that a lot of people describe characters of color with um you know food terms like chocolate or or you know like almond eyes or or whatever so i challenged myself to find different descriptions even things like black and white we we kind of in the us at least ascribe the the color symbolism with white is good and black represents like darkness and bad things and I was like well what if I just take something like that and flip it what would it look like for a culture to say black is good and white is not good because like even for coming from my Chinese culture white is the color of death it's what people wear when they're mourning when they go to funerals so that was what really inspired the line in the weird western where the bruja says you know white is the color of death it's the color of bones that are bleached in the sun and black is is life when you dig through the dirt when you look at the stars and that's when you really think of life it's 
subtle, but it it really influences a lot of my writing to do those mental exercises and and explore what kind of like assumptions you could challenge and and flip and change. When you read jacket copy about surveillance state at this point in the 21st century in America, there is definitely an instinct of like, oh, minority report. And you confound every one of those expectations. I would just, I guess I would love to hear a little bit more and maybe it's more stories from your trip or things that you've learned during research about presenting something that it's not that it feels unequivocally good. And certainly the ways that anima throughout the story is kind of grappling with the question of what it means to surveil. But again, I don't know that I've read something, certainly not for a long time, that has kind of made me think like, oh, this actually, some of this stuff might actually be kind of nice. Yeah, there's a line toward the end where Enigma is like this. I never said this was the right way to do things. Mm -hmm. I just said, this is how we do things. And I choose to support it, but that's my choice. And so I think maybe what makes my take on surveillance different is that I kind of wrote it from the point of view of marginalization, because a lot of people see surveillance as like, oh, this is big government, big companies, technologies trying to, you know, take control of, you know, the the status quo and things like that. But I was kind of thinking like, what if you have a group of refugees who have suffered this trauma of having people disappear because they have, you know, the ruling group knows how important it is to have scholars, to have artists, because, you know, I was I was thinking not just of China, but a lot of different regimes where, you know, the, the dictators, they'll take out all these intellectuals because they know how important that cultural knowledge is. So I was thinking, what if you have a community who has suffered that kind of trauma and they've created their own nation where they can really keep an eye on people? And just make sure that people don't just disappear, you know, whether it's because they're getting taken out by dictators or, you know, whether it's, you know, a a kid who runs away, you know, just this idea of, you know, we want to protect people, but protect coming from this place of like deep trauma, but also trying to do it in a way that is really beneficial to people. And so that that was kind of like where I was coming from with the surveillance idea. And so it's not necessarily completely benevolent, because for example, it opens with Anima seeing that there's someone trying to leave the city, which you know, the in out is very tightly controlled, because they want to make sure that it's the right people like coming in want to make sure people aren't just disappearing. So Anima sees a person escaping the city and then being taken in by someone from the Skylands, which is basically the the colonizer oppressor um, country. And so kind of like it, it blows their mind to be like, wow, these people can still have relationships, you know? And that's when Anima really starts to question, like, this this is an arbitrary rule, isn't it? Mm. You know? Yeah. But, you know, we, d- we define our communities based on based on the rules we make. You know, I, I, I draw so much from so much real world stuff, like even very mundane things like conventions were having a lot of debate over codes of conduct, including them and enforcing them. And that was something that went into aura. You know, the society has agreed on their code of conduct. And some people might not think that these rules are, you know, correct, but this is what people have agreed to. And this is what, you know, Anima has chosen to enforce. Yeah. And it's it's hard once you start thinking about it. Yeah. To to not, yeah, how would that play out if we tried something, you know? Mm-hmm. I noticed something in your acknowledgments. I love reading acknowledgments because it gives me great joy, both to just 
see authors bestowing love on the people who've helped them write the book. But you mentioned tarot and divination mm-hmm. for storytelling. Please tell me everything. Yeah, so I tarot is very much based on archetypes, you know, character archetypes, archetypes for social roles. And I think there's a lot to be, you know, uh, my influence kind of shows itself in the text because anima is, is drawn from Jungian psychology of like the shadow and all these different unconscious processes. And so it was kind of fitting that I used tarot a lot for this story. I don't actually use it as much for a lot of my other writing, but whenever I kind of got to a point where like, I was like, hmm, what should happen next? I would do a spread and I just like see what kind of images came up see what kind of ideas and like I think tarot can show a lot of conflict too and just have you exploring like a different layer of things I would like look at it and think oh this this doesn't really fit what's going on but then I would do another like think a little bit more and be like okay but this can be a source of conflict for a character or this can kind of influence where the story is going because you know it won't it doesn't give me like concrete this is how the story should be written or or, it's not really specifics but it it kind of gets at that feeling and that mood so that was where a lot of tarot was really helpful to just let myself like free associate and kind of let some concepts come together and percolate and and just see what would happen from there and I I love tarot because it, it feels like a sonnet because the structure is the same but different people bring their own interpretations. Like I really love Trung's tarot deck because it was the first instance where I saw like Asian iconography in a tarot deck. I had been really used to, you know, of course there's the classic like Rider Waite ones. I would, you know, go to the the magic shops and see like the fairy ones, but then they're all white fairies, you yeah. know? So, so it was just really cool to, I think there's a lot of um, push for diver- more diversity in tarot decks. Um, like Yoshi Yoshitani just came out with one that is absolutely gorgeous and it draws from different folk tales and mythology all across the world. It's just really cool to see how people are putting their own spins on it. And that was a really fun way to influence my writing, especially because Trung's deck, it does draw from a lot of Asian iconography, but at the same time, it also draws from a lot of classic like the little mermaid the whole cups um uh, suit is based on the little mermaid and the mermaid's journey so it was just really cool to see this blend and combination which is kind of the aesthetic i'm going for with with my novella as well you know you get a different cultural layer but there are some stories that are like very classic go from a science fictional surveillance state to Mexico City. But it's not the Mexico City that you and I can visit because it is overrun with vampires. Silvia Moreno-Garcia is the author of a bunch of books that you have probably read recently, including Mexican Gothic, Velvet Was the Night, The Beautiful Ones, Untamed Shore. But the book that she and I talked about is Certain Dark Things. It's actually a re-release, and it's the first book out from Tor's new Nightfire imprint. I loved getting the chance to finally read this book, as I have been trying unsuccessfully to get my hands on a copy for years, ever since I first heard about it. A neon-drenched noir novel about vampires and gangs in Mexico City sounds amazing. Thankfully, it's back in print, and the first thing that I asked Sylvia about was this book's journey and what it was like to come back to something after all this time. 
when it originally came out, there was a, some reorganizing at the imprint where I was. So my editor had left and I was shuffled between editors and then the imprint eventually closed down. So the books were not only orphaned from an editor, but basically orphaned from a company. My agent got the rights back. We had been periodically, because it went out of print so quickly, there were basically no copies of it out there. And it disappeared very quickly. And we would hear people telling me that they wanted a copy of it and they couldn't get it. So I saw somebody sent me a link and there was a copy for like $150 of the hardcover. It was prohibitively expensive. So my agent and I were shopping both this and the beautiful ones, which was also acquired by Tor for a re-release. And we wanted to get them back in print get them in um, paperback editions because they never came out in paperback, get them new audio, new ebook, all that kind of stuff. So we got Tor to Bite and, uh, and they took it. And so that's how it came back from the dead. I did a bit of some revisions on it, small stuff, stuff that probably most people wouldn't notice on both books, just because the first time around things were just so crazy in terms of what was going on that I thought it needed a little bit of an ironing, but if you read it before, it's not like you're going to notice that a character is missing or, or anything like that. Was it easy? Was it strange coming back to something so long after you originally wrote it? Yeah, I think that's one of the problems with writers is that they're always time traveling. People think <laughs> that, you know, we've got a new release and it's fresh in our mind, but this is really something that might have been written three years before. It's always a little bit of time travel. So in this sense, it was just jumping um, a few years further down into the past into trying to figure out some of the work that I had done. <laughs> Something that I really love about your work is how gleefully genre hopping it is. I feel like anytime I pick up a book from you, I am excited to be like, and okay, what has she done this? Where are we going this time? And what drew you to writing this version of a noir? What keeps drawing you to writing noir? Yeah, I really called this one my neon noir. I wanted it to be a noir, but not kind of like the smoky 1950s sort of older noirs, which I really love. And I've done some work now with things like Velvet Was a Night and Untamed Shore that echoes some of those writers of that time period, the Jim Thompsons of the world. But I really wanted to look a little bit into a sort of alternate future or alternate reality and deal with a world where the crime element is not realistic. It's it's vampires and set it in, in Mexico City. In a Mexico City that doesn't map exactly to our Mexico City, but still has enough touch points that can basically walk around the city with a map following the places that I'm talking about. But it's not... You know, it's something slightly askew. So I just thought it would be it would be fun to deal with a noir in, in that sense. And also that vampires are normally creatures that have been heavily romanticized for a really long time. It's nothing new. People think Twilight did it, but vampires as objects of desire, of romantic love, have been there since the very days when, you know, Bella Lugosi was a sex symbol. So we, we have all that kind of erotic imagery and romantic imagery more recent of the vampire. And I wanted to kind of push against that and do some vampires that are not terribly romantic and are really kind of criminals, crime adjacent vampires. And also some vampires that are not very good at being vampires. Like both of our younger vampires are a bit like brats. They're, they're entitled, very wealthy, sort of party kids who just happen to be vampires, which sounds pretty dangerous, actually. You introduce characters 
so wonderfully. It feels like they, you know, there's the cliche of like the character walks onto the page. It really feels like every time you introduce a character, boom, they're there. I see them. They are so vividly present. Is that how they show up for you as you're writing? Like, do these characters just sort of walk into your life and onto the page? A lot of the early work for me is figuring out the characters and who they are and their mannerisms. So I talk a lot, a lot to myself to work on the dialogue initially. And just it's like free flowing conversations. It sounds like I'm crazy if you hear me when I'm doing it, because I'm just talking to myself and answering in different voices. But I'm just trying to figure out if somebody who was having lunch, what would they be like when they interacted with a with a server? Or if they were waiting for the bus, where would their hands be? Those sorts of things. And as I kind of fall into that role, I begin to understand more the characters and kind of pick the bits that that I'm going to be using to to build them. So it's it's a strange experience. It's a little bit of play acting and a bit of possession, you know, to try and figure out the physicality and some of the other characteristics of characters. But yeah, character work, I think, is really, really important. I had a friend who said that I am a literary writer in genre clothing, kind of like the wolf in sheep's clothing, but like that. I do have a great love for some of the classic kind of literary works that do such a heavy amount of character building, but the characters are guiding you through. And I really love that about literary works. I like to start more with character than being concerned about plot. Because also the greatest, I think, some of the greatest stories of suspense have a lot of MacGuffins. There's just this thing that you got to get, but it's not that important, like the mouthpiece plot and what it ultimately is. Yeah, I saw an interview that you had done. It was about this book. I think it must have been right after it had first come out. You were remarking that people seemed really drawn to the world building, which is so lush, and I certainly do have questions about it, but that you were like, I don't know, for me, these characters are the thing that I hope people walk away from this with. And that really struck me because it's been a long time, you know, maybe the vampire Lestat is the only other vampire I can think of off the top of my head who I have felt like I had an emotional connection to by the end of the book and whose emotional journey. Atul's journey really felt very different from any other vampire story I've experienced. And I guess my question is really about sort of the balance between these wonderful, robust characters and the world building side of things. Yeah, I always think you have to build just enough to get the illusion, right? So if you've ever gone to a theater performance, you will see that there's a background and there's clouds and maybe a castle, but it's not, it's not real. And nobody expects you to build a real castle and get some real clouds onto a stage and uh, make that happen. But when you sit down, if there is enough detail in the way that it's painted or that it's lit, you really will believe that you are on a castle with Hamlet and he's looking out the ramparts and he's giving his speech. That's that's the magic of theater, and but it's also the magic of books. There's these elements that will make you feel immersed in something and I think one of the problems sometimes with, I don't know if it's like modern storytelling or Western storytelling specifically, is this desire to analyze and classify everything that's mm. on the page and explain everything. So give everything kind of like a backstory and a reason in a taxonomical place, which sounds a little bit hypocritical because I do have a taxonomical bit in the book, but I actually <laughs> included that 
originally because they just asked me to put more pages into the book. <laughs> um, they just wanted, you know, like a, a little bit more uh, to like uh, fatten up that spine and they wanted a glossary and I didn't want to do a traditional glossary. I wanted to do something that was more fun. So I came up with this kind of encyclopedia vampirica where you had some entries about the vampires and more of the world that you saw in the book, but that I didn't explore. So I wrote that part and and I put it in there. And then a lot of people complained that, you know, some of the vampires that appear there don't appear in the book. But to me, it was just like this kind of fun extra side dish that doesn't have to be the main course. But I think a lot of people do get kind of like caught up in in that and in, in like the taxonomic classifications and the rules and, and all that kind of stuff. And if you read a lot of great old sci-fi and great old pulp fiction, a lot of this shit doesn't make any logical sense at all, <laughs> right? Like Shamblu by C.L. Moore, which has a great vampire, by the way, a great female vampire. I mean, Venus, you can't have like a colony like they have in Venus. And it's basically Han Solo with a vampire. And, and you know, it, it doesn't, you, you stitch it together and it doesn't really hold in a perfect way. But it just, what you get when you read it is enough. You get this great sense of adventure of these space outposts and these space rangers and space criminals and all this kind of stuff. And there's this just wonderful sense of a bigger world than what you're just seeing right there. And so that's what I want to do. I just want people to kind of believe that there's a bigger world out there, but not to get so obsessed about the minutia of where does this kind of gear fit with that with that other gear so much. Because like I say, it's like theater. You just paint the backdrop, but you don't get like so close to the clouds that you have your nose pressed against them because then they're not really clouds, right? You lay your painting in a certain way to give the illusion of light and shadow. You get too close to the painting, you can see that it's just cardboard. Speaking of the additional things that are in certain dark things, I was really struck in the end, there's um, a conversation that is included in the end and you mentioned the ways in which colonialism sort of keeps finding its way into your work. And I think because I read it as soon as I finished this, again, I had the like, ooh, yeah, right, vampire coming back to life, or even more Michael Myers or something. You think it's dead, you think it's gone, and then it finds its way back in. And I would love to hear you just talk a little bit about the ways in which the larger geopolitical thoughts that are swirling around in your brain find their ways into these stories that on the surface, it's like, oh yeah, this is a neon noir with vampires, or this is like a gothic love story. How does that happen for you? I think every every writer has a lot of some subconscious in it. I mean, we all have subconscious kind of percolating, but every good writer knows how to tap their subconscious and kind of work a little bit more with it. There's just things that kind of float in your head and reappear sometimes, and you don't know why. Um, it could be a certain specific kind of imagery. For me, the color yellow, I've used it in several stories. And and for example, I, I have a good reason why I've been using the color yellow in, in my stories. It's because in the 19th century, yellow was associated with the decadent movement that was going on around the time. There was a magazine called the Yellow Magazine, and it was yellow. Uh, you have things like the yellow wallpaper and the king in yellow. So there's this use of yellow in several things around that time period that I just kind of found fun and interesting. And so then I used yellow as a recurrent element in several short horror stories of mine. And it, and it appears again and again, just as this little thing. And that's And that's because of that. Um, also green because of arsenic and um, pigments that were poisonous. I 
took that from learning about painting and that sort of stuff. So these are things that sometimes they might have been initially been subconscious, but then they became conscious. I started thinking maybe more about them, about why I was constantly kind of using yellow as imagery and, and went back and started thinking about what might have inspired that. So yeah, I think you just kind of learn to access your subconscious and, and pull at those things. And sometimes it's messier than others. Like um, in terms of colonialism with this book, I wasn't trying to consciously think about it, but it just kind of seeped through and then it seeped through into other titles that I've that I've worked on, such as Mexican Gothic in one of its most explicit ways it happened. But it was just kind of there simmering and it takes time for things to grow. So when I was working on certain dark things, I was at a different point in my career then when I was working on Mexican Gothic, uh, by the time I was working on Mexican Gothic, I had finished my thesis, which had been on Lovecraft and on eugenics in the early 20th century. So I had been thinking a lot more about certain kind of ways in which people relate themselves culturally and inferiority and superiority than I had before. So what you're seeing with certain dark things is almost like a fossil record. It's, it's a point in time in which I maybe was starting to consider certain issues. And then they acquired a different shape as I moved on through books. Books are constant conversations with other books and other authors, but also with yourself. And we sometimes keep naturally coming back to the same questions and having different answers that are radically different uh, at different points in our lives. So many of your books are looking back in time in some way. What is it that draws you to, broadly speaking, whether whether it's the literal setting of the first half of the 20th century or sort of the spiritual set, like noir continues to have, even when it's set in the present, it continues to have these elements of, you know, the, the classic films. What is it that keeps drawing you back to that? I mean, that was formative media for me in, in a way. It's like um, Hammer films, Gothic films were things that I watched growing up and also noir, like black and white movies, uh, Mexican noirs, Cine de Rumberas, all that kind of stuff. So it, it was just like a big part of my diet early on. And sometimes going back to this those initial points in time, what happens is that with genre, we are often seeing kind of like the mutated offspring of something many generations later in terms of film, in terms of TV, and in terms also of, of books, obviously. And it helps often to go and look at it in its first incarnation, kind of clean before it's covered with all this other stuff to see what people did at that point. So like my eldest child, we watched an Agatha Christie adaptation yesterday because I wanted to show it to him and, and he liked it, but he said he liked Knives Out better. He did say, you know, I understand that this came before. And so therefore a lot of the twists must have been really new when it was done. And I said, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, that that's exactly the way it is. Putting people in a house and doing a kind of like a locked room mystery there were pioneers of that who did that for the very first time so i told him that we would watch um, maybe alfred hitchcock next time because he hasn't watched it and i'm not sure what we're going to do whether we're going to see north by northwest or something else because again there's something about watching what, how something evolved and changed over time but going back and, and rather than looking at the kind of mutated version returning to that in a way that 
that can almost make it feel very fresh. I was watching Charlie Chaplin too in, in the Criterion channel and I laughed all the way through his reels. One of the funny things was how much the humor was still workable. Like it worked even a hundred years later. It, it just, and some of the things he was doing are things that people still yeah. do nowadays and routines. I really like doing that because it, sometimes it feels really incredibly fresh when you go back to that well. The other thing is that, like I said, yeah, that's that's what I grew up with. That's what I really love. I, you know, grew up with analog media and a certain way of seeing the world. So I'm drawn back to that quite often and not so interested so much with the present. I guess nobody has asked me if there's a method to my madness, if I'm following a specific kind of genre path that I'm trying to reach, uh, which I kind of am. Um, it was a bit of a master plan. It's been changing now as I've been doing kind of uh, some some other things, but it, it was uh, kind of this idea of doing what would have been all my favorite childhood genres and, and tackling them in, in my own way. So doing a fantasy quest and then doing like, yeah, like a vampire book, a serious sort of more, that, that sort of stuff until I kind of lined up everything that I really liked when I was a kid. I figured right now that I'm missing Westerns and I'm missing also Bible epics. I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that one. <laughs> but yeah, so the things that I used to watch with my great grandmother as a kid when we used to sit down in front of the TV set and she would knit and I would just like watch these things and uh, and come up with stories in my mind. And yeah, yeah, I mean, being Catholic during, you know, Easter, like it's the whole story of the crucifixion of Christ and, and you get um, all these big epics with girls in belly dancing outfits. And I kind of want to do that, but not sure, not sure who, like Salome seems too obvious. So we'll see. <laughs> I really loved your introduction to the reissue because there's this story that you tell about the actor Herman Robles, how he inspired this book in a, in kind of a very small way. And then I feel like a version of that anecdote makes its way into the book, which I really, I really just loved that, that sort of, I felt like I was getting to see you just for a split second. I would just love to hear a little bit about that, a little more about that story and sort of your you're including it in the book. Yeah, for uh, people who uh, who don't know who Herman Robles is, I mean, he was an actor of many, many things. He did a voiceover work and he was in soaps. But um, I knew him because he played the vampire, a vampire, in, in a couple of movies, you know, classic vampire movies. When I was a teenager, he was in a play adaptation of The Woman in Black. It's this guy who goes on a, on a journey to a distant estate and he has to do this job and there's this mysterious woman in black who maybe causes children to die, right? So so he was in that. And I, I think, I believe I went to the premiere and my mother took me because she knew who Herman Robles was. We all knew kind of like he was the vampire. But when she had been young, she wanted to be an actress and she had been an extra. And her teacher at that time had known Herman. So she just, you know, kind of wanted to uh, go see him again. So I went, I saw him, he signed my, you know, like autograph book or whatever. And it, and it was this, you know, great thing. I don't think I said anything interesting to him, but I always saw him as the quintessential vampire, both when he was young. And then when I saw him again, and he was old, an old man. And, and I just kept that image of Herman in my mind as like this perfect European looking creature, you know, who is a little bit dangerous and cool looking. And when I wrote the book, I, I created a character that is inspired by him. 
And I do remember that when I, when I lived in Mexico City, my husband-to-be lived in a part of the city where Herman Robles used to go have dinner at a, at a certain restaurant at nights. And so, you know, I, I sometimes f- felt the urge to maybe go stalk him because we knew where he might be, but I never did because that would have looked mm-hmm. fairly, fairly weird. And, and then, yeah, the, the story that I told in the intro, which is pretty sad, is that I wrote the book, I dedicated it to him, hoping that I might actually be able to go and maybe send it to him, not find him now physically. And, and I was afraid he was so old and frail. I told my husband, I, I'm, I'm fearing that he might die before I finish it. And then, yeah, he died before it came out. So that was that. So he never <laughs> got to see it. But it was my great plan. It was my great plan was to write this book, put his name kind of like in the dedication and therefore kind of wheedle my way into uh, <laughs> into his good graces, I suppose. But it was, it was a really fun vampire movie, those vampire movies. He was one of my favorite vampires along with Christopher Lee. I think that it is important to have someone in your life, ideally several someones, who you can go to for reliable book recommendations. I mentioned earlier that the spooky season is coming up fast, which means that I'm building my October reading list. All frights, chills, scares, thrills. And there is one person I can always count on to give me the best spooky book recommendations. Emily Hughes is the site editor for Tour Nightfire's blog. She used to run Unbound Worlds and is generally one of the smartest bookish people on the internet. I can always, always count on a recommendation from Emily, particularly about a horror book, and so I thought it'd be interesting to talk to her about what makes the genre so compelling, why she keeps coming back to it, and why we should all give it a little bit more of a chance sometimes. So I've always been a scaredy cat. I grew up terrified of horror movies, terrified of going to the beach. As much as I loved swimming, I was terrified of sharks or something, you know, grabbing me from under the water. I grew up afraid of, you know, losing a family member, of getting abducted because stranger danger, of any number of things like that. And yet all I wanted to do was watch Jaws. I was terrified of sharks. And that was the only movie I wanted to watch. I would sort of edge up to the Goosebumps books in the library at school and then kind of go, oh, I don't know if I can do it. But I really wanted to, but I couldn't quite. And as I got older and I started to, you know, have more of a a sense of self and a sense of the world and the dangers of the world, I became sort of increasingly drawn to movies and TV and fiction and people who were writing about the concept of being scared. And that's that's something that's so basic and it's so intrinsic and so visceral. We all experience that. We all have rational fears, irrational fears. There are, there are kind of infinite ways to be frightened. And what I love about horror fiction is that there are infinite books that can you know so you can you can make your way through that landscape and you can find the book that speaks to your fear or you can find books that stoke a fear that you didn't even know you had which is always a fun experience (laughs) my husband was reading a series of books by rick perlstein about the ascent of american conservatism in sort of the 1960s through the 1980s 
um, which makes a lot of points about the cyclical nature of American politics and the way that uh, pop culture kind of follows those cycles. And he read me a passage that I found absolutely fascinating about how the ascent of American cultural agita around nuclear war, around the Vietnam War, about youth countercultural movements, things like that, that tracks almost exactly to a, a real rise in horror pop culture. You know, you see Jaws, The Exorcist, things like that. And then, you know, Sylvia Moreno-Garcia has actually talked about this a lot, is, is sort of the rise and fall of horror in the back half of the 20th century. And that ascent of horror in the 60s through the 80s also kind of tracks to a lull in horror in the 90s, when, if you think about it, it, politically, things were a little calmer, you know, the state of the world was a little, you know, America was doing better. And then 9-11 and then, you know, 20 solid years of economic anxiety, uh, recession, various wars, political upheaval, the rise of populism and fascism across the globe, a pandemic. And we've seen this real rise of horror again in the last decade and a half or so. And I think that that's really natural. I think that it's a way for people to work out the things that scare them in a safe setting. You know, you can sort of prime your nervous system to figure out how you would react to something, how you would react to a situation that you're never going to face in real life, but it might still scare the hell out of you. How would you, how would you deal with a zombie apocalypse? You know, do you, you know, that was a fun sort of point of conversation when I was in college, right? Like who's on your zombie apocalypse team? You don't use a car because the gas supply is unreliable. You've got to get a machete because you don't have to reload it. <laughs> people think that horror is one thing, especially people who haven't really engaged with it as a genre. If we would even classify it as a genre, I kind of think of it more as a mode. It's, it's a, a way of telling a story, not a monolithic sort of subset of fiction or even nonfiction. Horror as a mode is so versatile and it's something you can sort of sprinkle in like a seasoning if you're telling a story that is you know has sort of another angle to it and i just think that's fascinating i think it's just such a rich part of being human that you know in in a lot of arenas we don't really talk about and we should because we all experience it. It's it's as close to a universal experience as I think there, there probably is. And horror fiction is really my preferred avenue for that. I mean, therapy is great too, but sometimes you just need a scary book. <laughs> Keen listeners might have noticed that I, at the beginning of the episode, swiped Emily's metaphor about genre as a spice cabinet. But that's because it's so good. Don't you just want to think about it like that now? This idea that you can write anything and you can throw in a dash of this, a teaspoon of that, uh, accidentally knock the top of the chili flakes off and so half of the canister falls in and you just tell everybody that you made it that way on purpose. Anyway. This has been... Tor presents Voyage into Genre, a co-production with LitHub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Danny Lanchoni of Evelyn. Mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at LitHub, and to all of you for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. 